Uh, the headline read, Plumber Finds Cash Checks Behind Loose Toilet in Wall of Joel Olstein's Lakewood Church. And so there was a plumber working at Lakewood Church. Lakewood Church, if you don't know, is a mega, mega, mega church. They bought out the, the arena where the uh, Houston Rockets used to play, and that's where they have their church. And it's a big old church, and so a guy was doing maintenance, and to do that, he had to remove some tile out of the way, some insulin out of insulin, <laughs> some insulation out of the way. And what spilled out of the wall was about 500 envelopes worth $600,000 inside those envelopes. $600,000. And the plumber ran to Mexico. No, the plumber <laughs> gave the money back. And now it's this question of the plumber's like, am I going to get some sort of kickback here? Uh, and they're kind of wrestling with that. But it actually, what happened was, is about 12 years ago, in two, or not 12 years ago, in 2014, $600,000 went missing. They haven't found out who stole that, but his genius idea was to put it behind a toilet and maybe come get that at another way. I think it was a disgruntled staff member and he's ready to quit. And he's like, I'm, when I quit, I'm busting the toilet and I'm getting out of Dodge here. Uh, but this is very humorous sort of story. If you know anything about Lakewood's church, because their teaching on money has really confused a lot of people. And I, I don't want to just sit here and dog them, but but for me, when I hear it, I'm like, man, what's, what's going on? Money and church have at times gone together like oil and water. A lot of the times, I, I grew up in the era of Jimmy Swagger and, and all those guys who were abusing money, embezzling money. A lot of times it's because the loudest preachers, they love to talk about one thing and it's money. And they talk about it a lot. Generally, if you turn on the TV and you see somebody on television, on one of those networks, they're talking about money. Just give your money, give your money, give your money. And they've muddled the gospel. And they've confused people as to what the gospel and what the result of living in the gospel looks like. More than ever, we're confused about things like, like tithing and generosity and using our resources because that teaching has been abused. And so here's the reality whether you like it or not, I'm going to talk about money and tithing today. Not because I want to. I didn't wake up last Monday and say, I, I, I just want to talk about money and tithing. I'm not sure if we've really ever talked about it like this at this church since we've been in existence. I've just kind of let you guys do what you do. And guys, you've been generous, man. You've been generous. But we're going to talk about it today. Not because I want to talk about it, but because Malachi... The book we're in is talking about it. God through Malachi is challenging his people when it comes to their view on, on money. And, and here's what I want. As we work through this passage, I want you to pray that what I preach is biblical, God-honoring, and edifying to the saints, encouraging to you guys so I didn't warn Greg about this, but Greg, can you pray for me before I preach this sermon on money? Because I'm preaching this with fear, man, and just some humility. So go ahead. Lord, we are just grateful for how you provide for us. And I just want to thank you for the people in this church that give and have made it possible to do what we're doing today. Their generosity is overwhelming at times. And I do pray for Larry. Lord, will you speak for him? I know we talked about that a little bit this weekend. And, and um, I know he's, he 
is uh, wanting just to share what you have uh, given us through your word and uh, just speak through him. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. We'll turn to Malachi 3. Malachi 3 is right before the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. It's the last Old Testament book. Uh, God, after these minor prophets, he goes silent for 400 years, and then Jesus comes on to the scene. And so we've been in this book of Malachi. It's kind of been a fun book to read before uh, the Christmas uh, event that we have on December 25th, where we celebrate the birth of Jesus. But the book of Malachi is is one of a father who loves his children who are rebellious. His children have been turning their back on him time and time again. They have been horrendously unfaithful to him. And he starts out the book with, man, I love you. I love you. I chose you. You're mine. I'm going to be faithful to you. But then he starts to, like any good parent, correct his children. Guys, being a parent means at times saying to your children, man, what you're doing is wrong. It hurts me. It hurts you. And, and here's how you correct that. And so he's sitting his child on his knees, looking him in the eye, and, he, and he's correcting them. And we have more of that in this passage. And so look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6. If you don't have a Bible, we have a free Bible for you in the back. Take it home, please. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God doesn't change. His character doesn't change. His purposes never change. So what God is saying is, I will remain faithful to my covenant people. It's why you're still walking the earth. It's why you still exist, because I am I'm faithful, I'm patient, I love you. That will never change. That will never change. Look at verse 7. From the days of your father, you have turned, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. It's the idea of you've been kind of rebellious for a long time now. And God says this, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So God is saying, even though you're far off, restoration is still possible if you desire to change, to take that step. The word return This idea of return, the word return can actually be translated as repentance. Now, when I say repentance, usually it means to say, I'm sorry. Are you repentant? It means to say, I'm sorry. But repentance, there's a little bit more involved with with it. It's the idea of you're walking in one direction, and to repent is to stop, forsake that direction, turn, and go the other way. And so Israel, at this time, was running away from God. His will, his purposes, his desires. They were doing their own thing. They were doing what they wanted. By God, we're not happy with you. We're just going to kind of live life the way we want to. For them to return, for them to repent, would mean to forsake that, turn back to God, and relationally recommit themselves to God, submit to him, reorient their lives to him, to love him, to worship him, to do his will, to live out his purposes and his plans. A major tenet of the gospel is is repentance. The first thing Jesus says in the gospel of Mark is, man, the kingdom is here. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's the first thing he says in the book of Mark. We repent by going one way. We're running away from God. We're rebellious. We repent by turning and forsaking that sin and turning in faith 
to Jesus Christ and orienting our lives around who he is, his teaching, and what the gospel means for us. That's what biblical repentance is. And so we say, you know, how do you become a Christian? Or, you know, how do you get into heaven? We say things like, you got to ask Jesus into your heart. Uh, Jesus didn't say things like that. He talked about belief and faith and repentance, this turning away from sin and putting our faith and trust in him and committing our lives to him. And there's a truth that was real for the Israelites thousands of years ago that's just as real for us today. If you repent, like if you're walking away and you repent and you turn around, God will be there. And some of you are thinking, man, I've been walking this road a long time. God left me a long time ago. That ain't biblical. When we turn around, God promises to be there. He promises Israel that. He promises us that. Now, just some of y'all needed to hear that this morning. And they asked the question, well, how should we return to you? How should we repent? And on the surface, this seems like a pretty honest question. But if we've looked at Malachi's, uh, when, when God's people question God throughout the rest of this book, they, they've been kind of sarcastic questions, angry questions, frustrated questions. So this is more like, why, why, why do we need to repent? Like, we're not, you know, you're saying return to me. We're not lost. It's like a dad who's ever driving to a new location with his wife. Honey, you're lost. No, I'm not. And Israel is saying, I'm, we're not lost. And God is saying, Yes, you are. I love you, but you're lost. Look at Exhibit A. So here's where we begin to start talking about money. Look at Exhibit A. Look at verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And God says, in your tithes and contributions. So they're being accused of robbery. Man, now we're talking about ties, we're talking about theft, we're talking about felonies here. Like, what, what, is, what is going on? And so let's step back a little bit and let's define some things. Let's, let's talk about a tithe. A tithe is a tenth. A tithe is 10%. I grew up thinking a tithe was, you know, they passed a basket and I drop a dollar in there, that was a tithe. Uh, if I made $10 that week, a tithe would be a dollar. But if you make $100,000 and you give $3,000, away. Like you're, that's not a tithe. That's, that's, you know, you're giving something, but you can't call that a tithe. You can't dress up a dog and call it a cat. It's, it's just not that thing. It's not happening. So a tithe is 10%. And God challenged his people to, to tithe, to give, to give to God. And there were three tithes for Israel. There was a yearly tithe that was given for festivals and for temple use. A tithe was given every year uh, to support the ministry of the priests. And every three years, a tithe was given to people in need, landless people, homeless people, the sojourner, the stranger, the immigrant. It was to help those sorts of, of people. And so if you add all that up, that's 23.3% a year. You ever heard a pastor preach that? You need to be given 23.3%? Yeah. We, we, we're not super consistent when we talk about, we talk about tithing. And on top of that, they gave free will contributions. Sometimes in the Old Testament, people would get caught up in giving and they'd be like, man, we just want to give to this festival. We want to give to this priest. And so we're going to lay these at the feet of God and, and, and let him use them. And so God says, 
you are holding back, withholding those tithes. Now, they could be withholding everything, a part of those tithes and contributions, maybe just a little part, but God calls it robbery. If you look in 7 and 9, you see the word rob twice. You rob me, you rob him, but robbers, you rob. Like that's a main theme when you see words repeated over and over again in, in a short space. Well, why is this considered robbery? Why is withholding what God asked of us considered robbery in the Old Testament? Because everything we have, everything he has given us, belongs to him. It all belongs to him. Who's guilty of this sin in this chapter? Who's been guilty in the past before? Who's, who's Malachi really harped on? The priests, Levites. Now he's saying, all y'all, there ain't one of you guys who's innocent here. You guys have all been robbing me, and it's, it's robbery because it all belongs to me. Their land they're sitting on right now, God has brought them back to this land, this promised land. God has given them. In Leviticus 25, he says, this land you are living on is mine, you're, and you're just, you're just simply living on it. It belongs to me. Thousands of years ago, after leading his people out of Egyptian slavery through the wilderness, after feeding them with bread from heaven, he brought them to the promised land and told them this in Deuteronomy 8. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors, as it is today. The land gods. Everything that comes from the land, it's gods. There are really two ways to look at money. One way is to say, it's mine. <laughs> I earned it. Like, nobody helped me out. My family didn't help me out. God sure didn't help me out. What I have is mine. Therefore, I am going to use it however I want to use it. I'm going to buy this. I'm going to get this. It's going to make me happy. That money's mine. I will do with it what I want. Nobody can tell me otherwise. Another way to look at money, wealth, what you own, your resources, is to say it's God's. It's God's. It has been graced to me. It's been given to me as a gift. And I will use it in any way he sees fit. What you have has been given to you. Guys, this is, this is the reality here. There are people who work harder than you do who make less money than you do. There are people who work way harder than I do who make less money than I do. So what God has given me has been a gift. And so I can either look at money closed-handed, stay away, don't touch my money. Don't mess with my money. And, and you have a closed hand, or you can look at it open-handed and say, you know, this is God's, and, and, and God, I desire for you to, to take what you want, and, and I will, I will I'll, I'll use it for your purposes. And, and generally, when you're open-handed, you can generally receive something back from God, which is kind of neat. But when you're closed-handed, when you're closed-handed, it, it, it may result in something else for Israel. It brought on calamity and destruction. We'll talk about why. Look at verse 9. You are cursed with a curse, 
for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Man, it would be easy to read this passage and say, God's going to curse me (laughs) if I don't tithe. He's going to curse me. Is that true? Is God going to curse you if you don't tithe? I I I don't believe so. God has established a covenant with Israel that involved blessings and curses. There were positive promises for obedience, things like children, land, fruitful work, etc. There were also negative consequences for disobedience, things like famine, drought, destitution, slavery. Does God work with us in the same way today as New Testament Christians? And the answer is not exactly. No. The cross has changed the way for us and the way that that system works. Galatians 3 says, Christ has redeemed from us the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. Now, if we were under the law in the way that Israel was under the law, then yes, if you would fail to tithe, that would invoke a curse, but it was for a whole nation. And so to say that, man, God's going to curse you If you fail to give, that's just not true because we are in Christ. He fulfilled the law. He obeyed the law in our place. We are no longer under those sort of curses. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There may be discipline at times, but cursing because of our sin? No. No, not exactly. We are only cursed now by rejecting the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I just want to make that clear. If you're struggling, and this is what the health and wealth prosperity gospel can uh, unintentionally teach or intentionally teach, that is if you're struggling, it's because you're sinful. You don't have enough faith. And that's just not true. That's just not true. God says, in fact, for New Testament Christians, that one thing you can expect is trials and tribulation. Not necessarily blessing all the time, but hardship and suffering. And some of you are like, amen, I know what you're talking about. But you're not experiencing that because you're, you're sinful and you're unfaithful. So I want to make that clear. Israel is lost and they're struggling under the, the weight of their disobedience. But because God is good, he gives them a roadmap to return. Look at verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. God is saying in loving obedience, pick back up again the practice of tithing. Don't withhold from me what is mine. Stop stealing. Now here, God is speaking to ancient Israel. We've started to make that distinction a little bit. Is he saying the same thing for us? Are we commanded to tithe as New Testament believers? Well, Jesus talks about tithing in somewhat of a a backhanded way. He's talking to the Pharisees and he says, you guys tithe perfectly, but you you don't do acts of justice and mercy and and you're not serving people well, loving people, helping people. He's like, you got to do both of these. And so there's there's kind of that idea where he upholds it. but, But after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, after the work of the cross is complete, there is no command after that to to tithe. There's really no command for us to tithe. In fact, in the New Testament, when we look at the, new, the, the, the church, this new community of God, the focus of giving is on sacrificial generosity. We see a group of people 
transformed by the grace of Jesus, whose offerings to the community of God were no doubt greater than ever. Listen to the, how the church was in Acts 4. Now the full number of those who believed were one of heart and soul, and no one said that any of those things belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and a great grace was upon them all. So the gospel was being preached. They were talking about Jesus and what he had done. They were talking about the cross, his sinless life, his atoning death, and something was happening where they were beginning to look at what they had is not their own. And this is what it says in 34. There was not a greedy person among them for as many were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. They were giving to the community of God to allow God to work for the ministry to flourish and for needs to be met. An early church father Arrhenius, he quoted the Jews, the Pharisees and the Jews, they were constrained to a regular payment of tithes. I like that. They were constrained by their tithe. You give this, then you're good. Christians who have liberty assign all their possessions to the Lord, bestowing freely, not the lesser portions of their property, since they have the hope of greater things. The early church didn't ask a question we sometimes ask a lot in the American church today, like, what's the correct biblical interpretation that I need to adhere to so that I can just give whatever's needed, you know, give the, you know, so I can check that box and just get on with my life? That's what we sometimes ask. Like, am I supposed to tie to 10%? Is it 8%? What's, what's the biblical number so I can, I can just, you know, give that number and, and then be good, check the box, and just get on with my life? The New Testament church seemed to ask the question, you know, how can I orient my life? How can I free up the most resources to serve God well, to bless my neighbor well, to build up this community of God well? In the New Testament, people are encouraged to give joyfully. In the New Testament, people are encouraged to give proportionally. People with more are called to give more in the New Testament. That's that's true, man. If you make $25,000, a year, 10% is a pretty big chunk. If you make $150,000 a year, I think you can live off 90%. I mean, it's, if you've given more, if you've gotten more, you to, to, to give more. In the New Testament, giving is a response of gratitude. We've been generously, graciously, and mercifully given the greatest gift ever. You have been given Jesus Christ. Salvation. You have been given eternal life. And what did it cost you? Nothing. What did it cost him? Everything. And we received that free gift through faith. That is it. Through putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Our God has been infinitely, immeasurably generous with you. And we are too, as God's people, transformed, given new hearts to reflect that generosity to the world and back to God. So, so I will not say, thou shall tithe. And if thou doesn't, thou dost hasn't. I don't know how to say that. <laughs> thou doesn't, you're in sin. I, I, I don't think I can 
rightfully say that and, and be consistent in my hermeneutic and my understanding of God's word. But I will say this. For most of us who've, who've never given or even thought about this, a tithe is, is not a bad place to start. You know, there's nowhere in the Bible that says, you know, thou shalt wear a seatbelt. But wearing a seatbelt's a good idea. Um, and so, you know, Tithing is, is not a bad place to, to start. Uh, Randy Alcorn, who, who wrote a, a great book called Money, uh, Wealth, and Possessions, I think is what it is. I may be misquoting uh, the title. It's a great book. He, wrote, he talked about money. He said, tithing can be the training wheels of giving. It can teach you how to start giving. But here's the deal with training wheels. At some point, you take them off. If I see you as a 30-year-old grown man with training wheels, uh, we may have a conversation, <laughs> unless it's like a trike motorcycle. Those are pretty sweet. Uh, but if you're riding your bicycle, and you're, you know, the point is to take those off one day, but a good place to start is, is to tithe. Maybe 10% is a good place to start. Maybe more. Bro, if you're making $250,000, good on you. 10% is not that big of a chunk. It may be because of how you've oriented your life, but, but start giving 10 Start giving 10 and then, then ask God to, to work. Don't let it end there. It's a scary thing to do. That's why God says this, I think, in the next section. It's a scary thing to do, but when you do it, I do believe, and I'll clarify this in a second, that God will bless you. Look at 10. Bring into the full tithe, bring the full tithe in the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord. We don't see God say that a lot. It's like, test me. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will destroy the fruits of, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fare to fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts, and all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord. Israel, just give. Just give and see what happens. I have storehouses full in heaven. It's Costco's upon Costco's upon Costco's in heaven. I have enough. It's interesting, he, he says, to give you what you need. I mean, it kind of seems like abundance there. And this is where prosperity gospel teachers love to kind of grasp onto a passage like this and say, God can't wait to expand your land God can't wait to make your business fruitful. He can't wait to grow your bank account. They love to ride this passage. And they love to get our hopes up. And guys, that gospel sells. It's not effective. It doesn't ultimately hold. That gospel is very attractive. Man, if I just worship God, I pray and I do these things, God's going to give me, you know, I have a, we have 1,700 square feet. God's going to extend that and we're going to get a 3,600 square foot home. That's awesome. Like I drive, you know, I drive this certain car. He's going to give me this kind of car. I'm going to be healthy and I'm going to look good and, and all these things. God wants that, man. That's, it's just not, not true. It's not true. To take such an approach, it fails to understand the context of this passage. We've talked about this. God is working with a specific nation here. God has established an exclusive covenant with Israel. And in this covenant, there were blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And it's misleading to say 
that there's a one-to-one correlation between what God was promising Israel then, in a specific place, in a specific time, and to me as a New Testament believer. The New Testament does speak of blessings that come from loving and obeying God. They're just not what a lot of preachers want to preach on. It's not as attractive. It doesn't sell as much. If you look at Matthew 6, don't turn there, I have it here. But in Matthew 6, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, don't be anxious about anything. What we shall eat, what we shall drink, what we shall wear. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of those things, all of these things will be added to you. God is saying, if we seek first his kingdom, if we seek first his righteousness, when we obey him in all different areas of life, when we seek, when we love, when we serve, when we give, he promises to take care of what we need. He promises to give us what we need. The gospel of of prosperity is false. The gospel of provision, though, is implied in Scripture. God will take care of you if you give. Test him. Test him. Me and Megan have experienced this firsthand. Guys, we're not always the shining, rich, wealthy, and healthy example that you see in front of you today. Uh, we're not rich, um, but we're not poor, but we have, we've, we've been poor, poor. We've been on that wick. We have, we have gotten to food pantries and eaten seven-day-old cake. You know what seven-day-old cake tastes like? Better with milk. It ta- <laughs> better with milk? Seven-day-old cake tastes like three-day-old cake. It's just as good. And so, but we've eaten food that's expired. Uh, we, we've, we've lived that life. But when we got married, we said, we'll give 10% no matter what. By grace. I'm not patting myself on the back. It is by the grace of God. It's probably habits. Uh, Megan's parents passed down to us. Uh, but we said, we're going to give 10%. So through that, we just, we just like, we're going to do it. We're poor. We're eating that government cheese, but, but we'll give We'll give what we can. And God did some crazy things, man. God took care of us. God provided. I don't know how. I mean, sometimes it was through people. I mean, we had one friend that said, hey, we're moving. Can you just live in our house for $400 a month? And we were like, oh, yeah. <laughs> in Colorado. We had donors and, and supporters that showed up out of nowhere. People we would never expect to support us when we were working in ministry at that time. Just, just give us money. And I think God did some miraculous sea parting, bringing back to life sort of miraculous work on our budget. Stuff that we may never know what he did, changing numbers, going to the bank accounts or something. And, and he provided for us. As test God, you know, you, you may not get a mansion. You may not get a Lexus. But he will take care of you. We have that promise in Matthew 6. Furthermore, The New Testament really doesn't focus on material blessings. It mostly focuses on spiritual blessings. Ephesians says this. Ephesians 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here's how you have been blessed. You've been adopted. You have a Father in heaven who loves you. 
You have been redeemed. The bondage of sin has been broken over your life. You have been forgiven. God does not hold your sin against you. We have in Christ with us today riches that put any wealthy man on this planet to shame. But Peter says we also have an inheritance waiting for us into the come, in the, in the to come. One day, in the new heaven and new earth, we will be given land. We will be given prosperity. We will be given comfort. We will be given peace when we know and follow Jesus. But we'll receive those things on the other side of heaven. Has God promised a mansion in this life when you give? No. But God will take care of you. And in Christ, you have received every spiritual blessing that matters, including a heavenly inheritance that puts anything that Zuckerberg or Musk owns to shame. And I want to make something clear as, as we close here. While God is talking about money, resources, what you produce, what you make, what you earn, he's really concerned about our hearts. You shouldn't read this passage and think, man, God's just, he's a miser, man. He just, he's just angry. He's like, give me my money. <laughs> give, give me what I deserve. God doesn't need our money. What he wants are hearts. And so this is all about our hearts. Giving is an act of worship where we confess God is Lord over all, including my life. All good things come from him. And for that, we are thankful. Giving is an act of worship. And God wanted Israel's worship to get right because he wanted their hearts. And for that to happen, they needed to turn and repent and come back to him. Giving is also a way for us to express how generous he has been with us. And when you grow in faith in this act of worship, I will believe, or I believe you will see time and time again, him provide for you and bless you today as you wait for your ultimate blessing tomorrow. Let's pray.